This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have a very special guest. Jim Semivan is with us. Jim is a CIA officer, retired. Uh, we've had a number of similar retired CIA officers on our show. Um, we like to have CIA officers retired on our show who have had experiences, military people who have had experiences, because this is a big part of everything. Uh, this experience, our experience, extends into the government in all kinds of different ways. Welcome to the show, Jim. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Whitley. I, I was really looking forward to this, and uh, I'm so glad you were you're kind enough to invite me on your show. I've been a fan of yours for decades now, uh, you know, back when you wrote The Wolfen and, and uh, some of your other novels. So I know you well. Oh, well, back when your hair was down to here and the back of my head still had hair on it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> those are good day. days. Yeah. Uh, those are good days. And thank you for that. Uh, uh, I, you are also a member of TTSA. And I have some questions that I would like to start with. Uh, sure. And then we're going to be discussing Secret Machines because it's an absolutely remarkable book. And because no one in TTSA will interview with me, including Peter Lavenda, uh, uh, Tom DeLong, uh, no one. Uh, Hal doesn't interview anyway. And I, I've known Hal for years. No, he doesn't. And uh, so that's not a, that's nothing new. But I was very disappointed when Tom refused to interview with me. Uh, Lou Alessandro won't even allow his friends to give me his email. And really? Apparently. And Peter Lavenda yeah. just suddenly cut me off in 2019 after a 20-year, close 20-year friendship. Well, well, interestingly, I was talking to Peter yesterday. And um, actually, I, I talk to Peter all the time. Uh, he is a huge fan of yours. And um, he thinks there must have been some kind of miscommunication uh, somewhere along the line. But I'm sure he'd be more than happy to chat with you and, uh, Good, and be because on your I, podcast. I think he has one of the best minds in the world. And, and, I do too. And in terms of his knowledge, it's extraordinary. Yes. It's simply incredible. His knowledge of things like Tantra and, uh, 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 and alchemy is true and deep. And you don't see that in many people, even in people who are, who are engaged in, the, in this stuff. And the things he's done... Uh, basically busting Colonia Dignidad in oh, yeah. in Chile. I mean, what an extraordinary oh. life. I'm well, I'm going to email him again. You've encouraged me. I, I'm dying to have him back on my show. I know I know he thinks very, very highly. I know that for a fact. Uh, you know, you're a subject to conversation all the time, uh, believe it or not. Within, <laughs> uh, By the way, we changed our name from uh, TTSA to the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences to simply to the stars about uh, about a month ago. Oh, okay. And, I did not know uh, that. We have a new website and uh, things along those lines. We had to restructure during COVID and and um, and uh, refocus some of our efforts along those lines. I know Tom also, by the way, is a, is a big fan of yours. And uh, I think maybe the reason why he didn't do interviews back at that time, I think when you might have asked him, he um, 
uh, uh, everybody was shying away from them. Um, uh, now, Lou, I, I can't answer for him. Lou is 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 extraordinarily busy, as you know. He's writing a book, and uh, yes, he has probably a dozen other projects going on. And I don't talk to him all that often. And uh, I talked to Chris Mellon. You know, we're on contact almost weekly. So uh, Chris won't but, won't interview with me either. I think. Well, we'll a, see. Well, I I I, I think he might change his mind but at the time we d discussed it and it looked like that this thing was going to become a big huge deal a and we we emailed back and forth about that and uh the question was should uh if he was going to end up out in the public space in a big way on 60 minutes and places like that what would happen if uh, he started to be asked about his interview with Whitley Strieber and what do you think about the abductions? And yeah. we just thought that maybe it would be a good idea not to put it, you know, I, I, I agreed with him. I th thought, but maybe it's, it's not that, it's not that huge. It's at this time, uh, the public is getting used to it. And I think part of the getting used to it should be the fact that yes, People in within the community, the 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 official community, do know about the abduction phenomenon, and what are their thoughts? So yeah, I'm hoping uh, I will uh, be able to interview uh, Chris at some point. Now, let's go on. Uh, we're going to talk about quite a few things. Uh, I want to briefly touch on your your uh, job in the CIA and it just, I'm not going to try to pry into things that you, you have to give me no comment about, but what in general area did you work in? If I may ask. No, uh, absolutely. I, uh, for the bulk of my career, I was a, uh, I worked in the clandestine service. I was trained as a, uh, you know, as an operations officer or, uh, uh, a case officer, we called him back in the day. Now the term is operations officer. I worked uh, both in the United States and overseas. Uh, I uh, worked undercover uh, a lot and um, and also in true name. Uh, I uh, did basically what we think spies do. I mean, you know, generally what you do is you, you go after foreigners uh, who might have information that we think the government might need or want. Uh, you make friends with them, um, and and usually there are legitimate friendships most of the time, uh, and everybody sort of knows what's going on, and um, you know the protection of that person is the utmost importance uh, uh, to you and to the organization, and uh, so we make sure that's you know taken care of, and uh, and then other times you know when I was in the states, I worked on uh, a lot of covert programs, basically in the states. Uh, I had. Uh, quite a bit of uh, contact with the private sector, mostly uh, high-level businessmen uh, and uh, uh, scientists, uh, people from the academies, things along those lines. Um, my focus always had always been high technology and um, uh, uh, foreign technologies that were uh, either threatening or possibly threatening to uh, the national security. So I spent a lot of time doing that, but that's generally what it was. And, and then when I got promoted into the senior ranks, I became more of a, a manager uh, of larger programs and uh, with bigger budgets and until I retired. And 
And then I went back to work for them uh, as a consultant and to other people in the intelligence community, other agencies as a consultant. And uh, I did that up until two or three years ago. Although I still have connections, I still get contacted every now and then. And, you know, they ask a few questions, things along those lines. But nothing to do with UFOs, surprisingly. Yeah. Even though the experience, uh, you met my wife, Debbie, uh, yes. uh, you know, uh, recently. And uh, the experiences we had was it was in the early 90s, probably 93, 92, 93. I'm not sure of the date. Uh, but um, over a period of time, while I was in the agency, I was trying to hunt down people that knew something about it. And um, it was very difficult because there is no there's no place in the agency that says UFO office on it. Uh, I sort of knew uh, one or two of the people uh, that that, you know, had it as a sort of like um, five percent of their time. They would devote to some aspects of it. Uh, and it was mostly foreign related. So you want to follow what foreigners are talking about, maybe foreign countries are talking about. And so you want to keep abreast of that. So you're not left behind in any way. Um, but other than that, I, I didn't really have much uh, uh, um, uh, luck. That said, I had a few phone calls, uh, talked to some people, and uh, realized that quite a few people in CIA were interested in this, uh, from the very senior uh, levels uh, all the way down to you know mid levels and lower levels in the agency. Um, that's what you know what you know Jacques uh, Vallee always referred to as the invisible college. Well. Every government agency sort of has that. The Department of Defense had that, uh, a group of people that were very well known uh, to have have this um, uh, subject area of, of interest to them, and then they would sometimes share. Now a lot of that is going on. I have a lot of contacts throughout the intelligence community who are telling me that there are a lot of people following this and pursuing this. So I always tell people in the next five, ten years, hang on to your hat. Uh, because a lot of people are interested in this and want to get more involved. Now, the Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, has said that requirements are being developed. Uh, Now, I think what you're telling me here is that there are people who are going to be answering those requirements or or responding to that. Uh, Right. Now, back in the 1990s, there was a smaller effort made by uh, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee who formed a select committee to try to evolve questions, not DOD requirements, but uh, uh, Intelligence Committee questions that they would ask the National Security Agency. And it it, it fizzled. Uh, and I was made very uncomfortable at one point by it because of uh, my um, uh, interest or, or knowledge of the uh, Roswell incident. And so in any case, that's been tried before, but not on this level. Uh, it, it, this is now a Defense Department operation. What Can you tell us what a requirement is and how that works? Yeah, a requirement is, is basically just another term uh, uh, for a question. Um, uh, when, uh, when you, you, when you be, uh, when you have an intelligence issue, let's say it's, uh, Chinese missiles. Well, uh, what happens is, you know, the best and finest minds throughout the intelligence community come up and say, okay, we know X, Y, and Z, but we really need to know 
these 10 things or 20 things. So they put out a list of requirements, which is questions that they need answered. And they send that to all the ships at sea and they say, try to find, if you can, if you run into anybody, or you know anybody that might know these questions, and that could be anybody, uh, uh, you know, then please report these through the intelligence community channels. And that, that way there could be an intelligent assessment made on these from all these different sources, you know, HUMINT, ELINT, uh, comment, um, uh, you name it, SIGINT, nascent, um, and um, the analysts put all those things together. Uh, John Ramirez, who was on your show, was yes. a real top flight analyst, and this, that's what he did. He was more on the lines of radars and things along those lines, but uh, he did some incredibly good stuff while he was there. So, but that's really what a requirement is. And that's your, that's your bread and butter. That's what every, every day you get up and, you know, you look at the requirements and, and there's quite a few of them and they they cover, you know, a multitude of areas and they're usually tiered in the sense that you have what you call, uh, you know, the harder targets, North Korea, Russia, China, Iran, things along those lines. And then you have these sub areas underneath all that. Um, and then you get into climate change, you can get into economics, you can get into all kinds of things, all kinds of areas. Uh, so you try to direct your energies uh, toward collecting information on that. We're going to be taking a little break now for our free listeners. Uh, and just so you know, the place to go if you're interested in To The Stars is tothestarsmedia.com. And you can take it from there and look into what they have to offer. We'll be right back. We're talking to Jim Semivan. Jim spent a long career and a very distinguished one in the Central Intelligence Agency. He is now a member of To the Stars. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I'm remembering the new organizational name. That's that's new organization. To the Stars. Okay, To the Stars. And what are you hoping to accomplish with the public with this organization? Well, you know, we had. Uh, we had a lot going on before COVID struck, and uh, we were working with uh, uh, the military. We had uh, two or three research projects. Uh, we had uh, a number of uh, entertainment projects. Uh, and we had uh, we had some successful raises uh, of funding, and we have I think close to four or five thousand investors now. And so we were hoping that we would uh, get a few of these things off the ground and running. We were attracting investors. COVID hit. Everything just sort of went away. I mean, it, it was uh, it was to the point where, you know, we had a, a little business that sells T-shirts and mostly it's, you know, uh, Tom's Angels and Airwaves band. And then it's the two to stars stuff. Um, but uh, we have about 12 employees. And so we uh, we we needed to figure out a way to refocus. So we did, and we figured out that the best way to do that was uh, through entertainment. So we have, gosh, at least a dozen uh, film projects, documentary projects in the works at various stages. Tom just finished directing a movie that uh, that TTS uh, wrote a script for uh, called uh, Monsters of California. It's a young adult young adult film, and and it's it's hilarious. I've seen a lot of the clips, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It has some very serious moments in it. That'll be out uh, hopefully by the end of the year, if not sooner. Um, uh, we have uh, some things going on with secret machines, which I can't really get into right now. 
Uh, we're working with a very large production company and uh, we're waiting to hear from them. And I think it's going to work out really, really well. Uh, both the fiction and the nonfiction Secret Machines uh, books. And then uh, our our relationship with the Army Futures Command uh, came right back up after COVID. You know, they had to shut down a lot of their labs. So they told us, look, we'll get back to you. And sure enough, they did, true to form. And we've been working with them very closely on what we would call metamaterials. Uh, we're working in concert with them and also with a defense contractor trying to make heads and, and, or tails of, of uh, some of the uh, materials that we actually have. And it's progressing. So we have a credo with them, which is basically a research thing. We, the, the company doesn't get any money. What the company gets is, you know, they promise us three quarters of a million dollars in research or up to a million and then maybe more down the road if they come up with anything. And uh, and our interest in this is, 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 you know, is really trying to find out, you know, is this material that we have, you know, off world uh, or not? And it certainly looks like it is because uh, to date, and it's been tested at numerous labs, we we can't figure out, you know, what it is and where it came from. Are you Much referring like to the material you got from Linda Howe? Yes, absolutely. Uh, she was I, kind I have enough some of that to... myself. Do you? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, well, hang, yeah, hang on, hang on to that. Well, I'll let you know. I mean, seriously, yeah, what you do. have out uh, there, we have some interesting. I, we had it tested at Southwest Research back in the 90s, and yeah. uh, it's a very strange, it's a, it's a layering of bismuth and magnesium. And the strangest thing about it is that between the layers, there's nothing adhering them. You can mm -hmm. see that in the microscope, microscopic yeah. uh, images. So that's where we, yeah. that's as far as I took it. And then I became concerned because some of my material, some other parts of this same group of materials that I had been given by Art Bell and that Linda had been given, I gave to some uh, people from a Navy lab who were studying this stuff. And it, it, I was told that it had been lost uh, because the intention was to give it back to me and that never happened. And so I've kept this other little piece ever since. Always sign a contract, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. even if it's for no money, but sign a contract with the government and that sort of holds your feet to the fire. Uh, well, every, I learned every, my lesson piece, the hard way. Yeah, every piece of material we've acquired and we borrowed some. I mean, when, when Lou was working with us, Lou, I mean, he, he was very, very good about that. He, you know, put out a contract that this is what the terms are. And uh, we will get this back to you right away or whenever, you know, you want it or we weren't done with it. And we've done that so far. So, uh, but getting back to TTS, I mean, you know, you know it is a company and, and the company was formed by and large to, to educate people for what we would call, a, a, you know, a, an informative uh, uh, um, focus uh, on this phenomenon. And, and by that, we meant that we had a lot of people in the government that had a very strong interest in this and that knew a lot more about it, uh, I think, than the general public. And we wanted to get that out, you know, through book form, uh, maybe movies along those lines. Um, and also, since we're a public benefit corporation, uh, to use some of our profits uh, when we start making profits. Right now, we're not profitable. We're in the black, but we're not profitable yet. But when we do that, um, we hope to, you know, devote, you know, anywhere from five to ten percent of our monies to uh, to research on this topic. Now, depending on how successful the company that is, we'll see. I mean, we'll see what kind of research that that will uh, that will entail from from those funds. But uh, 
you know, so we're hoping in the next year, this will be our year and we're looking very much forward to it. We, we brought in uh, uh, a, a new person on the board, uh, Stan Spry from Cartel Entertainment, um, a very large company that does movies and documentaries all the time. He's, he's been wonderful. And we have a, a, a what we call our money guy or our venture capitalist, uh, um, Chris Miser, who's also part of the board. And then myself he's a, and Tom. He's a money guy, and his last name is Miser. That's cool. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, right. It's, yeah. He's he's a wonderful guy, and he's uh, he's he's been very very helpful to us and the company. No, that's and good. Getting ahead and moving, yeah. Okay, I want to just touch on one other thing in this level, and then we're going to go on to something that I think interests is more important on this show that you you, you won't be discussing on other shows, I would, would think, which is the relationship between this experience and consciousness. Jim and I, in, in the interest of full disclosure, have uh, known each other for a while now. Jim's been a, a subscriber to Unknown Country for years, mm -hmm. but uh, he has also, we've, we've met and had some pretty deep discussions. So this is not like he's not like a stranger here and this is why we're going to be able to go so deeply into this now but first i want to go to the one one question and it'll turn out to be a segue as you'll see and it is about air force silence now to background i came from a family that was heavily involved with the air force not my dad he wasn't involved with the air force but my uncle, Edward Strieber, was, and he was not only involved with it, he was involved in uh, working with the Roswell materials when they were brought to Wright Field. And he um, and General Arthur Exon discussed this with me after I had published Communion. My father, unfortunately, had passed on by then, but he had a, some kind of a connection with this. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but the only indication of it I've ever been able to find is the fact that uh, we lived on one street, uh, on, on, on one side of a street, two houses down on the other side of a street lived an FBI agent that daddy spent a lot of time with. And then the next street over was Colonel Guy Hicks, who had been the uh, commanding officer at the airfield where uh, a, a Captain Mantell had fired on a UFO and been killed. And of course it was a being characterized as a, he, he went up too high and it was a weather balloon and he ran out of oxygen and died of, of uh, confusion and hypoxia because he lost control of his aircraft. So I used to be sent over to play with the Hicks kids. And then daddy would, you never knew when daddy was interrogating you. He was very good at it. It was terrifying if you'd done something wrong and he knew it. You'd, you'd confess without knowing it every time. <laughs> so Anyway, so something was going on there too. Now, uh, one of the things that General Exxon talked about, and I have never spoken of this before in my life, I was told it was secret. and But I wasn't told never to talk about it. I was told 
to keep it secret. But I'm not sure in this current atmosphere it should be a secret. It was that the bodies that he held in his arms were very light and insectoid is his description of them and that everything they got was extremely light in weight and this gets me to questions about the nature of our relationship with something that may have a very different consciousness but before we go there i would like to ask you what you think about the Air Force's silence, because the Air Force is the place that must know the most about this, I would think, especially about these bodies. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, I can't speak for the Air Force or, or CIA or any other organization, obviously, uh, but let me, let me tell you what I think about this. I, you know, I, one of the things I mentioned before on a a few other podcasts I was on was the silence of the Air Force and all this, just like you mentioned. Um, and there are other agencies too have been relatively silent on this. And you have to ask yourself, okay, what's going on? Uh, but let, let's go back. Let's go back to 1947 and 1948. It's right after the war. Um, you know, you know, the, the biggest surprise we had was in 1941 with Pearl Harbor. Everybody was shocked. CIA was formed. A lot of other agencies were being formed. And essentially, the, the rule book was then, look, we're never going to get caught, you know, uh, you know, with our pants down again. We, 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 we got to know what's going on. And um, I, I will tell you, after 30 some odd years working with CIA, that very few things go by us that we don't look at and investigate if we're not 100 percent sure or we think that it could be possibly be a threat to the national security of the United States. So imagine yourself in 1947 and 1948, and you're uh, witnessing all this UAP phenomena in the air, uh, and you quite don't know what it is, and you've ruled out everything else. And then you have, you know, some Air Force generals and some CIA officers, senior CIA people coming out and saying, look, we don't know what this is. It's real. Uh, and we're going to have to take a look at it. But we're going to have to do this in a way that doesn't arouse uh, suspicion and, uh, you know, well, of course, they did just the opposite, but but it did arrest it. But we're going to do this in a way that, you know, it doesn't tip the Russians off to anything and that it doesn't cause alarm to the general public. And that was the feeling at the time. So I always tell people this. If, you know, what, what, what would you think that, that CIA or the Air Force would do when they came across a phenomenon like this? And they had absolutely no answers to it. Well, they put together, you know, sign, grudge. Blue Book, you know, the Robertson panel, things along those lines. And, uh, you know, Condon report came out. Uh, but you but and then later on, OSAP and then ATIP. So, I mean, they continue to look at this, but they like to do it, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, confidentially because they don't know what it is. They and they don't know what it is, A, and, and, and B, 
they don't want anybody else to know that we don't know what it is. And this is, again, purely from a national defense perspective. Um, you never, ever want to tell anybody, uh, particularly your enemies. So if you tell your friends, you tell your enemies at the same time. So you never want to tell your enemies how, how far you are along on a particular topic. So I think that probably one of the primary reasons they kept this, they kept this quiet. But if you asked me, was OSAP and ATIP the only program in the government that's dealing with this, that has dealt with this? No. Uh, no, I, I I couldn't believe that in a million years. I think I think back in 1947 and 1948, and we do know that you know back in the uh, 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 40s and 50s, CIA was working on this with the Air Force. Uh, you know there were there were uh, divisions with inside CIA that was looking at this issue along with uh, psychic phenomenon issues because we knew the Russians were also looking at that, but also because they were peering over our nuclear bases, things along those lines. So I think there's been a concerted effort over the years, over the decades that has been going on. I think it's still relatively hidden. Um, uh, uh, I don't know uh, the particulars. Uh, I will say that I, um, I think that uh, I think that the, the nuts and bolts aspect is, 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 it has been looked at. And, and I think the other aspects, the more important aspects to me, and we'll get into this down the road, I think have been looked at also. And I think that's what's extraordinarily puzzling, puzzling to the government. And I think they just don't know where to go with it. And I think there's a sovereignty issue here. Uh, uh, and I think there's an issue with, you know, frightening people, frightening the popula populace, because as we'll get into, uh, hopefully, in, you know, in a few minutes, um, this can be a very frightening experience and it really <laughs> questions reality and everything else. So th that's my feeling. So, yeah, uh, I can see why the Air Force is being silent. Do I wish they weren't? Yeah, I wish they weren't. Uh, and uh, I wish these things would come out. But if there is a national security aspect to it, I'm going to have to give them the benefit of the doubt. I could be wrong, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. Yeah, I have very precise knowledge of why the secrets are being kept, and I've talked about that before on the show. But folks, if you if you want me to talk about it again, just send an email to Whitley at Streber.com, and I'll talk about it again, because I've talked about it enough. And I'm not sure I think all my listeners know the, the, the answers I've been given, uh, which are quite clear, and they involve the First, the National Security Act, which requires the Air Force to, uh, the 1947 Act did, required the Air Force to keep anything secret unless they knew it wasn't a threat. And uh, I think that that type of language still exists in, in a much more complex uh, 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 legal world we live in now. And therefore, they were required to. The initial secrecy came because something unknown had crashed within 30 miles of the only act, active or operational atomic bomber wing in the world. And uh, Stalin was extremely interested in whether or not those bombers were really operational. And uh, he had a four and a half million soldiers ready to sweep into Western Europe. And if those bombers hadn't been operational, he could have been at the channel in three weeks. 
but the bombers were keeping him back. Because like all dictators, he values his own life only. And he knew that the bombers could end that. So the fear was that they had sent something that a, a sensitive radiation counter of some kind, which would have told them the truth, which was that the wing was not fully operational, that there were only a few act, uh, finished bombs that could be loaded onto the planes. So as soon, as soon as Truman heard that, he immediately dropped a lid on it. And then as General Exxon told me, within 24 hours, everyone from Truman on down knew that what we had found was not of this world, which was initially a relief. But then the thought came, what is it? Is it some kind? And the thought was it was a scout ship and it was an invasion coming because these were all soldiers who had just lived through a tremendous war. And they thought how they thought. And then it this became kind of engraved in stone and the Air Force is kind of trapped in it because they've done so much cover-up and lying that they they don't really know how to get out of it. And I would like to see them get out of it because it must be remembered that from the beginning, they were following legal requirements in terms of the cover-up. It was their, it was legally required of them from the very beginning. It's an excellent point, Whitley. Um, um, actually, a number of points uh, uh, you made. Uh, the Air Force, like CIA and like every other uh, agency, works at the pleasure of the president and the National Security Council. And, uh, you know, when people blame uh, a particular organization for, for doing something or not doing something, uh, actually, the policy generally comes from on high and they'll tell you what you can and can't do. Um, when there's something controversial, for instance, uh, um, going to happen and CIA is asked to do something, CIA, asks, CIA always asks for clarification uh, from the Justice Department or somebody else along those lines saying, is this legal? Is this something we can do? Uh, and, and and if it's legal and they can do it, well, they have no option. Uh, if the president wants it done and uh, National Security Council wants it done, that's exactly what happens. And that's true for the Air Force and any military right. uh, organization. Yeah. Well, I can well understand their silence now because they've got to figure out how to explain the fact that they've done all of this. People are going to be angry, but they have to be angry not at the Air Force or the Central Intelligence Agency or any of these agencies. They have to be angry at the situation yeah. <laughs> that caused it. And um, uh, now that is going to move us a little bit farther along into the whole idea of how we respond to this and what's here and the issue of consciousness and free dreamlanders i am not going to make a break in this show and i'm going to ask you as i always do to subscribe and i'm going to also say to our subscribers let's get the word out let's let's get the word out about the about the show about the site because it's unique in the world there's no place where this is happening quite like it is here. Uh, many, many pe people who have had the experience are here. 
I'm here and I have lived with this experience most of my life. We talk to people like Jim who have had the experience in their lives. And then it seems to me it's time to ask you a question. Can you, what can you tell us about your own experience? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I've made some promises and some commitments, actually a number of them, not, not to discuss it publicly. As you know, you, Yet. you, you've, you've heard. Yeah, but Jim is going to, yeah, Jim is going to discuss it publicly in detail later. He's not keeping secrets here. He's, he's, yeah. he's yeah, and I don't want to. I'm, I'm pretty open about this, but I, I have to be careful about, about uh, any public statements for, uh, for yeah. the least foreseeable future. Just a, a general idea. Sure. No, it, it, where... it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, something that happened to my wife and I. Now, a little bit of background here. I've, I have always been a, um, a, a student of uh, esoterica, you know, paranormal, uh, you know, Christian, Eastern uh, uh, mystery schools, uh, mysticism in general. Uh, you know, I, I, in, in my graduate program, I studied mostly transcendentalism and um, British Romanticism, which, you know, got into German Romanticism, things along those lines. So uh, this this whole topic area, at least of the paranormal, the paraphysical, uh, as John Keel would call it, uh, was not was not new to me. But I didn't have any experience at all with you know, UAPs or UFOs. Uh, and uh, so one uh, one night we went to bed. It was any other night. We, we lived in an area that was an old Civil War uh, encampment and probably Indian grounds. Um, and I had uh, an experience where uh, some entities showed up and um, uh, and they they were as real to me as as, as uh, you know, Whitley is real to me. Uh, and I uh, I wasn't afraid or anything at, at the time. But um, uh, there was a series of things that happened. Uh, and then um, there were some physical effects uh that my wife had and i had um we have documentation for such and it was a, a very very unusual experience and it wasn't until a day later uh that i was at work and i was managing a um an office in the dc area, washington dc area where one of my deep cover officers that was working in in my area i went in to tell him to go home i said it was a weekend and he and he uh, said, yeah, and he, he was actually attending a UFO conference down at Virginia Beach at the Edgar Casey Institute. And it was that point I told him what just happened to me the night before. And anyway, long story short, he he was a um, uh, a, uh, a believer and an experiencer himself. And he told me what he thought might have happened. He mentioned immediately that um, I should read uh, Jacques Vallée. He told me to pick up Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, which I did and read and loved. And uh, so uh, that started me on the program. Uh, and I have been reading uh, ever since. Uh, I mean, usually a book a week sometimes uh, on this. I have literary amnesia most of the time, so I don't remember everything I read. But, but um, <laughs> you're not alone in that. Yeah, it was a it was a uh, it was a really seminal experience in my life and my wife's life. And uh, uh, we were luckily uh, not we were injured, but uh, not. Uh, you know, not problematically so, uh, and it wasn't until the 2014, 2015 that I was contacted uh, by the uh, by people in the government. I'll mention how put off 
Yes. Was one of them. There were others. I, I, I would say their names, but I know a couple of them don't want their names to be no, said. No, no, don't uh, say their names. You can say Hal's yeah, name. And, We've and then I got off uh, enough. I love Hal. Right. He's been a friend for a long time. He's a wonderful, wonderful he sure guy. Is. And, uh, and folks, I wish Hal could interview, and there will come a time, I hope, that he, that he can. But right now, yeah. it's not possible. But suffice yeah. to say, he's an extraordinary man, and yeah. he, he knows an awful lot of stuff. He does. He really, truly does. And uh, he and some others, uh, you know, uh, came to my house. Uh, there were briefings that were given at the agency, things along those lines. And it uh, it altered my landscape, so to speak. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it confirmed for me um, that we live in a very, very strange universe indeed. And um, I think... You know, uh, Whitley, what I love about your books so much, um, particularly my favorite is actually Supernatural that you and you and Jeff Kripal, uh, I guess, wrote together. Um, uh, it's just filled, I, I think, for me. I mean, I, I actually am in agreement with everything that you say in that book. Yeah. Um, we, 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 it's such a successful book that we both claim credit for thinking it up in the first place. But I think <laughs> Jeff was the one who came up with the idea of doing a book together. Go ahead. I think he, I think he hit the nail right on the head uh, with with what 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 you think the phenomenon is and what you think or you think it may be. Um, uh, there are a lot of quotes. You know, I I I, re I read it. I buy the book and then I read it on a Kindle, and um, and then I do the my notes and stuff. And I always pull out my notes and um, uh, and uh, when, particularly when I'm chatting with people, I know I'm going to chatting chatting with somebody. Um, if the task force or somebody calls up or said you know they want to talk, I really have to know a lot of this stuff. Because uh, once again, you know, when, when, when you're dealing with it, the nuts and bolts aspect to them are just, just that. There are manifestations, but that's really not where I think where the money is. The money is in the experiences. It's with the contactees and what's going on with them and what that means uh, from a psychological, sociological perspective, from a cultural yes. perspective. And uh, I think that's, that's where we're going to have to study and that's where we're going to have to figure out what's going on, if we ever can figure it out. Well, yeah, because we want to make use of this. Uh, this is a sure. valuable thing. And uh, the more clarity we gain, the better chance we have of making it something that's useful for mankind. I will say in parentheses that everybody's hoping we'll figure out how to build a UFO. However, we'll get into it in another show about how these things work and why it is that we may we may be too heavy to fly around in them but yeah. that, that we have to we, we'll get there um i mean to fly around in them and do all kinds of things like uh instantaneous turns and so forth now let's uh i think where i want to go now is to secret machines to the book and uh i would like to because I want to shift now into oh, oh I had it all set up and for some reason the thing went to the wrong place in the book I had it all set up in my Kindle here and um, suddenly I'm not I'm not in the right place uh, in any case I'll get back to this in a minute what I would like to begin with is this. 
going back to what General Exxon said and leaving aside for the moment the degree to which this is part of the physical universe we live in, he described something that the, the being he described fits very well with what I and others have experienced in two ways. First, small and presumably light. Second, a an insect-like sensibility. And if you can imagine uh, uh, something from that reality, the, the, that, that insect morphology that's more intelligent than we are. In other words, like a genius ant nest or a genius wasp nest, uh, or more, more accurately, I think, genius bees. Uh, that's what it feels like one is dealing with. But the thing that's so fascinating about it is, in my experience, there is a tremendously communal aspect to this phenomenon, to this entity, but also an awareness of individual individuals. In other words, there's a great deal of individuation. They're not just a bunch of bugs. They're a, a bunch of highly complex evolved people who have a communal intelligence. And, and this is now just speculative. Now, I want to go into uh, Secret Machines and read something from it. Okay, this is from Secret Machines, Gods, Volume 1. This is the nonfiction one. Um, this is it. In every person's DNA, uh, there is, or rather, excuse me, every person's DNA is unique. In a series of peer-reviewed papers and presentations, a New York researcher has proposed that DNA not only provides the mechanisms for human consciousness by building our nervous systems, brain structures, and sensoria, etc., but that DNA itself has a level of consciousness that enables it to carry out its functions. Now, this means, now the motivating, it goes on, the motivating idea behind DNA consciousness is the impossibility of accepting that DNA acts randomly. Now, something that General Exxon referred to very obliquely because it wasn't his world, was that some scientist, as he put it, had written a, a memo about why we should be very careful and keep this all very secret. And the memo I gathered from what he how he described it must have been from Dr. John von Neumann, the expert on computers and thought. And because he said that the memo offered the opinion that we may be in contact with a mind that is bigger than our mind and might replace our reality. I wrote a short story about this reflecting it called The Open Doors. Now you've had a contact experience. I've, I live in a state of contact and a lot of my listeners do too. 
where do we go with this, Jim? If we're dealing with a consciousness that's so fundamentally different from our own, where do we go? Boy, I wish I wish I knew. I can't tell you how many hours and hours, and I'm sure your listeners have gone through this too, trying to come up with some kind of reasonable solution. And I mean, we, I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, uh, you look to quantum mechanics for it. You look to studies in consciousness, you know, for some kind of uh, assistance in, in figuring what this is. Well, and even to, you know, medical science, I remember, uh, you know, uh, a couple of people from the government telling me when they were talking about DNA alternate, uh, you know, um, DNA uh, alter altercation when, when whether or not the uh, phenomenon was actually, you know, messing around with our DNA, changing our DNA, altering our DNA uh, or injecting, quote unquote, alien DNA. And the feeling yes. was, no, they weren't doing that. They were actually manipulating our own DNA um, and uh, in ways that, you know, uh, you know, that maybe could help us be more uh, cognizant of of the phenomenon itself. Uh, so, you know, is it directed to certain people uh, or directed at certain people? Why do certain people see it and other people don't? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, I, what what I do know is we're living. Uh, Peter Lavenda once said, uh, you know, he, he sent me a note the other day, but he was he was quoting something. But he said, you know, America lives in a haunted house. And uh, and I will just add to that. Yeah, but the world lives in a haunted house. And, and I think. I don't necessarily think it's, you know, it's haunted, but at the same time, it may not be haunted. It might be a, a really good thing, too. So I tend to look at this as, uh, and you you pointed this out in Supernatural, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I think it was either, you, I think it was you who did this. Uh, was part, well, you had mentioned the, uh, the dogs and cats running through a library with no indication of you know, at all. I mean, they're just getting through the library. They see yeah. one and one go to the other. We, they don't we, know what the same they don't sort know of library. library. Yeah, it's a library, or you can look at an anthill, you know what I mean? The ants don't know anything about what's going on in human existence or anything else outside of their little world. Well, to me, it's it's very clear, and I think John Keel, who I admire greatly, uh, uh, you know, mentioned this, and I think it was in um, Operation Trojan Horse, if I remember correctly, and he was talking about um, the idea of a microbe with a young student uh, a mic under a microscope and he was you know, injecting a needle and the microbe just lives in his own little world and then all of a sudden the needle comes in and he goes, oh my God, what the heck's that? And then he tells his other uh, microbe friends, you know, of course, the, the lifespan of a microbe sometimes is like six minutes or 10 minutes and then, but this this lore gets passed down to all the microbes and yeah, there's something that comes in and out and comes in and out all the time. We don't know what the hell it is and so, I mean, I think we're seeing that. I think we're living in this huge, huge reality that we can't even fathom. And um, uh, and I don't necessarily follow the extraterrestrial hypotheses very much. I mean, it's possible. And anything's possible with space-time. Uh, uh, but we keep looking at it through a human perspective and not through anything else, mainly because we can't. I mean, our brain's just too small. But uh, I, 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 I tend to think that um, uh, we are living with something and that this something is a control mechanism. And as, as you said before, and I think as Jacques Vallée has said before and others have said before, and Kiel said it, that in a way that it's influencing us, it's influencing us on so many different levels. And we don't have anything to say about it as far as I know. We don't. 
Now, you can look at that as being absolutely frightening, um, or you can look at it as saying, well, uh, you know, if we're all energy patterns, then this phenomenon must be consistent. It must consist of energy patterns, too. And if that's correct, then we're all basically the same thing. We're just at different vibrational levels, right? Yeah. Uh, well, as Einstein said, matter is energy slowed down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really all it is. I mean, and, and you know, I, it, you know, in that old quantum, you know, um, well, actually, it goes back to what Aristotle, I think, or Plato, I can't remember which one, when they were, you know, who, do, who, are, you, who are you looking at? What are you looking at? Are you looking at a table? Well, you're looking at a bunch of atoms, you know, a bunch of spinning a mass of electrons. And, well, you see the table because it's dense and it's part of our reality. And it's just congealed energy, right? And uh, But really, really, it's not. Really, it's a large, very, very large energy pattern or an energy pattern. And so is everything around us. And we yes. intermix with one another and what have you. So we're part of something, but we don't know what we're part of. We're like the ants. We're like the cats and the dogs. We're like the microbes. Uh, and we just don't have the capability. That doesn't mean we can't keep pushing forward and trying to find out what it is. And that's what our company hopefully wants to do and we, we will do in the future uh, through books, movies, things along those lines uh, and through hopefully research down the road. But it's, uh, it's a fascinating universe. Well, it, it sure is. And I wanna now turn to another uh, thought. This is about the Condine Report with an A, the British, uh, uh, intelligence community's long report and you may you you may not know it it's not the condon report in other words it's it's a yeah a, i think the name is a joke uh a, a very british joke if it's in any case it's largely a long complex effort to contain the notion that this whole phenomenon might have something to do with alien contact, but it gives itself away in a very interesting section, which opines that people who come close to these plasmas, as they call them, meaning UFOs, may be affected by some kind of radiation that causes them to believe that they have seen things that they have not, in fact, seen. And this, I think, is a truth, is true from my own life. But at the same time, it's also untrue from my own life. Because there are things that we can be made to see and to believe we have seen that weren't there or were something different. Like a perfect example, a typical close encounter witness might, like I did, I woke up the next morning thinking that there'd been an owl in the house. Now, was I was that induced in me or was, was that my mind trying to put this together? It, it, because perception works by comparison. Material comes into the, to the, to the body through the eyes, ears, nose, and sensation. And then the brain spends time comparing what it's getting in from its senses to what it already knows. And I didn't know aliens, so I knew an owl. And that owl is what came into my mind. I'd seen an owl in the house. But is there somebody managing that? 
And I want to ask you your sense of it without going into detail about your experience, which I know is going to is part of another project you're working on. Uh, is your sense that what you saw was absolutely real and part of this world or not? And I'm asking for a kind of instinct or a deeper response maybe than an intellectual one, if you, if you can call it up. Yeah. Well, I would never call myself an intellectual by any stretch of the imagination. He's very uh, well, modest, I, folks. No, uh, but but I, I would I, my my gut feeling, having gone through this, and it's taken me a long time to come to this conclusion. And I, you know, it's 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 you know, I went through, uh, and I think a lot of your listeners probably did too. You, you go through these iterations, you know, of what you believe and what you don't believe, and and then and they just get more. It is morph into something that's uh, I, I think is a lot more subtle. Uh, my feeling now is, is that it is, it is that we, we are, um, a very small part of a large enterprise, whatever. And I, and I think there is a higher intelligence that is controlling that enterprise. And we have no idea, uh, why they're controlling it, how they're controlling it, for what reason we have no one. We have a little bit of an, uh, an idea of their capabilities, but none of their intentions. So we don't know what they intend for us. And um, that's to me is, is, is the scary part. Uh, we know that the phenomenon can be uh, completely indifferent and that it, it doesn't necessarily look out for the welfare of people all the time. I mean, when you think about it, when you look at some of the, I mean, look what you went through and look at some of the, uh, your, your listeners that went through. I mean, my God, the human rights violations, I mean, of the highest order. And they were then, a little spectacular. Yeah, boy. Yeah. And then, but what do they morph into? I mean, they morph into something uh, a little bit more sophisticated, don't they? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, my dear friend, Chris Bledsoe, who had uh, an absolutely shattering experience down in North Carolina, um, uh, you know, and he's learned from it so much and he's taken a whole new tack and he's taken a whole new way of, of, of seeing this. And he sees his orbs every night as orbs come and he goes outside, the orbs are going to be there. Yeah, uh, it's the same and, with me. They're here all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly. I'm hooked up now. Right. So you have to ask yourself. Okay, um, I get that, but uh, but they also remind me of the gin. You know, I keep going back to the, the the trickster element. I remember when I was in graduate school. You know, reading about you know the fool. You know, the fool. The you know Shakespeare and a lot of Shakespeare's plays and King Lear and what have. There's always a fool, and the fool is meant to be disruptive, right? And the fool is meant to tell the king the truth in a funny way, so he doesn't get his head blocked, you know, chopped off. But nevertheless, he he's he's usually speaking the truth about anything at any given time. Well, here's the here's this, this you know the trickster element and um and this this phenomenon. Uh, it does lie to you, and it is very very deceitful uh, at times. It will tell you things that sound wonderful, but in and but also they make no sense. And uh, and is it is it toying with us, or is it using some kind of you know symbols that we don't understand? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think in a way I, I, I refer to them as the jinn because the jinn, you know, in in in, in um, Arab culture, you know, they're sort of like us. Only they're made out of quote unquote fire or ether or what have you. But they also have the same kind of a, 
you know, not emotions. Well, I guess you could say they have emotions too, but there's good gin and there's bad gin and, you know, and, you know, they play games and what have you. And, and in a sense, maybe this, this phenomenon is playing games with us. Uh, if you read a good folklorist or, uh, you know, a cultural anthropologist who studied, you know, fairy lore, um, I mean, and, and Jacques Vallée pointed this out in, in numerous books. Um, you know, it's pretty much identical uh, what the experiences were of the people experiencing these type of things with fairies, leprechauns, elves, uh, you know, uh, uh, sylphs and those things uh, to what we're seeing today. The only thing that's different is the context. You know, you know, they're seeing, I mean, the time element, the child elements involved. Um, uh, we're, it, it's just a different context. We're seeing UFOs as opposed to, you know, little funny leprechauns and, um, and, um, uh, little ships. Right. You remember the, remember the 1897, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, airship, uh, episodes over, over Texas and Michigan. Yes. Have you? Yeah. I mean, these things were basically airships at a time where there were probably only two airships known to man and they were both in France. And here are these things flying around and, and uh, the people that are in them, you know, they have beards and they come down and they're talking to people. They look completely normal. Um, and they're saying things that are absolutely incredible and, and people take them at face value. Uh, uh, but they appeared in that culture. I don't know if a spaceship uh, coming down at that time would have, would have, uh, would have made, uh, you know, too much sense or probably would have killed somebody uh, when they saw it. Um, um, because I do know that the the trauma of having these experiences uh, could be very very great. Uh, I know people that are not having a good time with this. Me too. Uh, I am. Plenty. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. And I know we talked about uh, this this program that you know my wife and I are part of, and that being studied along these lines. And uh, there are uh, a number of people in the program have have not done well. And so uh, when people tell me that this phenomenon is a wonderful thing and they're, it's peaceful and it's loving. <laughs> well, maybe, uh, maybe to some people, but not to all people. Very and, definitely. Um, it's yeah. always in my life personally been very challenging and it's very yeah. challenging now. In fact, two nights ago, I had a really difficult experience and, uh, uh, but I'm used to it now and I just sort of roll with it. A few weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night because I couldn't move, and I am well aware of the various uh, sleep-related phenomena that take place. Yeah, riding the mare, yeah, hypnagogic state. So I thought, am I am I having a sleep episode of some kind, which I've never actually had? I've been tested for them extensively as well. So something was holding me around my holding tightly to me so I could not move. And um, uh, it growled. It made a sinister sound. And there was a time when I would have panicked and began to struggle. And I just relaxed into it. And after a couple of minutes, about, I say, under a minute, 40, 50 seconds, the arms released. And... I didn't even open my eyes. I just turned over and went back to sleep. And I have no idea whether that was the phenomenon testing me or playing games with me or I got some demon came along and came after me or it was just me. And you know what? I don't really care anymore either. I'm just going to roll with it. 
Yeah. Well, I'm so you know it's it's it's, it's wonderful that you mentioned that, and I'll if, if you don't mind, I give you a little anecdote that happened to me, probably about six years ago, maybe. Uh, uh, was laying in bed with my wife in the house we lived in in Virginia. We don't live in Virginia anymore. We live in Delaware, but it was a it was a beautiful house. We loved it, and and we were in the bedroom, and um, uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning. And as men of our age are want to do, you know, I went up to go to the bathroom. Uh, went to the bathroom and I went back into bed and, and uh, I was sitting up in bed and, uh, and I looked over to my right and there was my wife who had stolen all the covers. Uh, and I, I was sort of grumbling. Yeah, so I'm, I, so I'm, I'm rearranging the covers and I'm putting it there. And all of a sudden I, I look up and I notice out of the wall, there's a window by the wall, but I mean, the window and the wall, I mean, it, something came through. And it was a black hooded figure, uh, but it was like cut in half. I don't know if you've ever seen the Death Eaters on Harry Potter, right? If you cut a Death Eater in half, right, the, the top part came through the wall. And just like you, uh, I, I just looked. It came about five or six feet into the room. It uh, wasn't looking at me at first. It was looking towards the bathroom. And then... Um, uh, and I'm sitting there and I wasn't the least bit afraid. For some strange reason, I wasn't. And it was just my, my initial experience, I wasn't afraid either. And it was almost like, uh, you know, I, it was like, I don't know what this is, but, you know, and then all of a sudden this thing turned and uh, looked at me. And for about five or 10 seconds, no face. And it was just a hooded figure. And it looked at me and then it just sort of backed itself out of the wall slash window there, both parts of it there, and and it was gone. And I remember I, I looked at my wife, and she was sound asleep, and I said, no, I'm not going to wake her up and tell her this. And I went right back to bed. I woke up the next morning, and it turned out uh, uh, we get up, and uh, it was, like a, I think, a Saturday, and the phone rang about 9.30, and uh, it was a fellow telling me that one of my uh, dear friends from CIA had, had just passed away uh, at 2 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, he would be a hooded figure, wouldn't he? This is a perfect yeah, metaphor. Yeah, for and it. I said to myself, and he was, a, he was a real character. He was a, a public relations guy for CIA. He was a public, he was a spokesman. He was the best man at my wedding, Mark Mansfield. This is a lovely, lovely man. And um, uh, But I remember calling up one of my uh, colleagues, uh, who's heavily involved in all that. You know him, by the way, very well. Uh, a doctor. Uh, and okay, I know I who said, you're talking about. And I, yeah, folks, I, I apologize for both of us that we can't say his name. Yeah, he, he doesn't like it. So uh, He so doesn't, I, and he's got a terrific temper. So he we does. definitely he does. are not going to say bad side of him, right? I'm thinking, lovely man, but I don't want to get on the bad side. No, no. And I, and I told him what had happened because, you know, I, he he's sort of my father confessor. He has all my medical files. He has everything. And um, uh, and he said, we need to contact this. You need to go back and make contact. This is this is an attempt at contact. Go back and contact. And there was a pause on my end of the phone. And I said, there's now and a, a bunch of expletives came out of my mouth and saying, there is no way no I'm way. going to contact <laughs> that thing. I don't know what it was. You know, I, I'm not I'm not the brave soul that some people are. You know, uh, I um, uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I always tell people I'm not. I, I've never been really tethered to the ground very well, and uh, uh, so I hold a lot of this off. You know, and there there are times when I have to take, and I, I, I recommend this to anybody who's listening. If you 
not to get too overwhelmed by this and where you're doing it every day or thinking about it every day. I take breaks. I mean, you know, a, a couple of weeks at a time, I just walk away from it. Don't look at my books. Don't do anything. Don't talk to anybody about it. Just go out and live my life. And so I can get grounded again, you know, and, uh, and then you can go back into this because this is uh this isn't uh this isn't easy. This is, this is hard. And if you've been, uh, you know, tapped on the head with a feather duster, as I like to say, the Buddhists used to hit you over the head, these little feather dusters and uh, put a little string around your neck. And uh, there's a reason for that. I don't know what that reason is, but I I think in some respects you're, you're special and, uh, and you should treat yourself as being special, but you should also treat yourself in a balanced way and realize that you render under Caesar's what is Caesar's and under God's what is God's. And uh, uh, render under the phenomenon. What's the phenomenon? But you know, you live in this universe. You live in this world. You know, yeah. don't forget that. It's very important. And but by the way, getting back to the hooded figure, I think it probably was your friend who had just died. He obviously had a sense of humor, and uh, but and the reason yeah. I say that is I have had many dead people come after right after they died, and they they can't communicate. In other words, like Annie said, after she died, once we did learn to communicate, she said, it looks like you're all intentionally ignoring us. uh, uh, But when they come, they come with tells. Like a physicist I knew and loved dearly, a friend for many years passed on, and suddenly there was this shadowy figure in my living room using a calculator like this and he was also a good mathematician and i thought i said john guess what you were wrong you still exist and there was a little (laughs) twinkle of light and he was gone yeah yeah i think probably that hooded figure was your friend hooded i'm in the secret world and the whole gestalt of it was scary funny kind of yeah but i still yeah, not I, sure that it would be a good idea to try to come into contact with it again well yeah and you know uh, you know it's it's there's never been and, and you know peter lavenda mentioned to me once too there's never been and i think it's his i think man maybe uh, his second book um this idea that there's never really been a concerted effort to make contact I mean, our truly concerted effort. I mean, I know, I know, uh, Stephen Greer is, you know, is out, um, you know, in California and where they try to make, or wherever he is trying to make contact, you know, takes people out in the desert and what have you. And then there's, there are some people that actually try to, you know, they meditate and you can make contact that way. But I'm talking about a, a really concerted effort. Uh, you know, you sort of wish we had a ministry of magic. I think was was it Condon from the Condon report made that made that comment once at the end of a lecture that yeah. you know maybe we should have a ministry not a ministry of magic. He said a, a, some kind of a department of magic where we could study all these phenomena. You know, uh, well you you mentioned uh, you know uh, you know William James's uh, uh, effort at uh, what he wanted to do with radical imp- radical empiricism, where everything is taken into account in science, not just. Yes. You know, what 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 is predictable and you know and um, uh, uh, testable, but what about the anomalous uh, behaviors and things or uh, that we see that are, that are not? And um, you know, uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wish 
And this is, you know, when TTSA was started, when TTS was started, that was our goal. Our goal was to actually start a program where we were going to collect all this data and put it together. Um, and much like was going on, uh, well, had, had gone on before, and I didn't know this with uh, uh, ATIP, with, uh, well, actually with OSEP, Jim Lukatsky's group at Bigelow and Colm Kelleher and that group. I mean, and Jacques Vallée put together a wonderful database. They have over 200,000 files in it. Uh, it's immense. It's owned by, you know, um, I think both Bigelow and uh, DIA. So I don't think we're going to get to see that anytime soon. But we wanted to, uh, you know, sort of mirror that um, and then make it ac- make that accessible to the public through a, a couple of um, uh, databases that we have already set up. It is incredibly uh, uh, costly to run, but we're working on that. Uh, so people can actually send stuff in and we can look at it and then we can send data back to them. And um, and then hopefully, you know, get, you know, crowdsourcing to come in to help us analyze the data in, in, a, in, a, in a good way, uh, in, a, in a scientific way. Um, but but I think that's really what is necessary. Now, is the government doing that? Um, from what I understand, you know, my few contacts that I have in the, in the community, the UAP task force community, um, I don't think so. I, 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 I think um, they're more interested in the nuts and bolts and national security aspect to it. But as I mentioned to one of them, I said, well, you're going to be very surprised. I said, because that's going to last just a little bit before you start getting into the deeper stuff, the, the more meaningful stuff, the abductions, the contact experiences, the psychological effects, the biological effects. And basically, you're going to be you're going to be getting into consciousness very, very quickly, and you're going to be getting into uh, quantum mechanics very, very quickly, or perhaps a nexus between both quantum mechanics um, and um, uh, and consciousness. I mean, super determinism, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, spooky action at a distance, uh, things along those lines. Einstein couldn't explain. Nobody can explain uh, these things. They're all part of this in some form or fashion, and um, and we're just at the beginning of this. But the big problem is, I remember Jeff was talking at this little gathering that we had that, you know, we have to connect the dots and and he's right. Uh, but my feeling is I don't even know if we have any dots because I, I don't even know where to where to put a dot uh, and, and what a dot, what one what of the dots would be. Um, because here's this thing, this phenomena that lies to you consistently. Uh, it never really opens the door in any meaningful way to explain what it is. So people get frustrated with the government and talking about disclosure. And, you know, I always tell people, what makes you think that the government has anything to do with disclosure? I mean, as if you know, the government is not even close to being big enough to manage the, this, this phenomenon. No. The phenomenon is so much greater. And uh, it belongs to everybody. It's everybody's issue, not just the government's issue. All the government is going to say, well, it's the same thing that we say to ourselves. What the hell is this? I wish we knew more. But there is no, you know, UAP division anywhere. There is no, you know, Department of UAP or Phenomenological Studies. I wish there was. You know, um, Richard Dolan believes that there is a whole breakaway civilization. and. I, I, you know, I'm not so willing to go down that path, but at the same time, I've seen things that suggest that there is a, com- 
some level of mankind that is in a completely different relationship to this phenomenon and to the universe. It's not us and it's not in the government, but it would sometimes like you to believe it is. And I, I'll give you an example of what I mean. One of the things that that Senate Select Committee I was briefly involved with wanted to know, I said to them, go go to the money, track the money, see what you can find. And what they found was an Air Force facility that was not being paid by the United States government. And uh, there was, it was not in, it was not in the Pentagon's roster of, of, of uh, at all. It, it, it wasn't a DOD facility, but it appeared to be an Air Force facility, active. Now, oh, they didn't tell me any more about it than that, because I guess they, they didn't want to talk to me about it, or maybe they found something classified. I don't know. My point being is this. There may be a lot of things going on that you and I and even people like Hal have no idea about. None. And could it be as big as Dolan suggests? Is that even possible? Yeah, I think it is. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Richard Dolan. I, yeah, he's um, a lot of fun, too, as a person. Yeah, I, I've never met the man, but I, I've read his books also. And I got him behind me here. And I'm um, a uh, big fan of the man. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I, actually that is one of the, one of the, um, theories that are take, being taken very, very seriously. Uh, you know, you know, people, people talk about, you know, uh, human beings, you know, descending, having a common ancestor. And we do have a common ancestor with the chimpanzee, we know that, but they were different, uh, different genuses. They, they went off in different directions. We, you know, we weren't, we didn't come from an ape. We, we basically came from some, some life form that resembled, uh, you know, uh, something and between a man and, a, and an ape or what have you. We, uh, we went one way and the chimpanzees went another way. Um, uh, so what's to say that there wasn't some type of, type of insectoids or insects or some other part of the animal kingdom that had the same thing and it developed consciousness early on, much as we did, uh, self-consciousness early on and, and, and basically went their own way. Uh, and, uh, and maybe a time when there weren't any humans and it got to the point where they decided they were going to live in the ocean or live underground or live someplace or, you know, they were able to basically hide themselves basically on the planet. Uh, I, I don't discard any of that. Um, I think, I don't, I don't think we're at the point now where we can be selective on what we actually choose to believe. I think we have to take everything in. There has to be a gestalt, right? There has to be yeah. this, 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 this. Now, you, you know, I, I like what you're saying. What, I, what I'd like about you uh, the most is the fact that you always caveat things. You're always, it's always, this is speculation, but you get into trouble when you basically start believing. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, in a certain way, because uh, I think that that's limiting, uh, and uh, we we can't allow ourselves to do that now. Well, my wife Anne had it right when she said the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions, and oh, yeah. I, I live by that. I think that is so critical. And yeah. uh, you know, once you free yourself from the habit of belief, your mind it. it it becomes really fun to be alive because you're never yeah. sure 
of anything and all kinds of doors keep opening as a result of that. That's uh, right. Now, before we, we're coming up toward the, we've got about 10 minutes left. And uh, I think that I would like to talk about one other thing, which is um, whistleblowers, as they're called. The mm -hmm. UFO community is filled with people who claim that they had clearances and uh, now they're violating their clearances and they're going to tell the truth. And the theory is that they do this willingly because they know the government won't come after them because if it did, it would validate their... Uh, it would validate their claims. Now, I know a few things about clearances. One of them is from my dad who used to say, if someone has a security clearance and they mouth off about it, they ought to have that security clearance revoked. Right. Um, he, and I believe at least in the early 70s when I knew people who in, in an entirely different area who were in, had security clearances it was illegal for it was they they had to say if they were asked by someone who didn't wasn't in the need to know situation do you have a security clearance they had to say no they had to lie i don't know right. if that's still true or not yeah now it's i mean if you work for any three-letter agency you know you're going to have a security clearance whether you're going to have a secret or top secret or code word or what have you you're going to have you're going to have you're going to have a clearance. Yeah. yeah. But now, what about all these people who make these claims about Antarctica and about undersea bases and uh, uh, bases underground and all of this stuff who claim that they had security clearances, but now they're violating them? Is that is there any reality to that, do you think? I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there might be. The, the, the ones that... Um, that are really extraordinary, the extraordinary claims. There was one fellow who claimed that he witnessed a, a fight, you know, under Dolce Mountain, you know, the base there where aliens were killed and we were killed and things, things along yeah. those lines. And then there are other ones who talk about Antarctic bases. And what I always go back to when I look at, hear these stories, you know, having worked for the government so long and having run very large programs and programs that were covert, very large, it's very, very difficult to do, very, very difficult to keep your security, make sure, you know, your counterintelligence uh, antennas up so people don't know what you're up to and things along those lines. Um, and of course, this was all directed overseas. It was all espionage. But but um, when, when people mention things like that, like Arctic bases to me, you know, and I think about the first thing I think about is, is all the logistics that have to be involved. The amount of people uh, back, you know, in the states that were, you know, are backing all this up, the money that have to be all the equipment, Everything that would have to keep going, you know, for a long, long period of time, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, um, uh, and particularly when you're talking about decades and decades and decades, and it, this is the first time it's come out, you know, when there are, you know, hundreds, maybe, well, tens of thousands of people involved and they all had clearances, but only one guy decides he's going to say something, you know, mm. Normally, you hear inklings. Uh, for instance, give, I'll give you a perfect example, like, you know, the ATIP program and the OSAP program. When I was at CIA, you know, back in 2007, I had heard 
somebody came up to me and said, I think I know this place in DOD, you know, and they said, uh, it's a guy named Lou, Lou E. And that's, he said, <laughs> that's all we know, Lou E, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, and I looked, you know, and I worked very closely with the Pentagon and I am some very senior people. <laughs> who are, who the hell is this Lou E? Everybody just shook their head. They didn't know who. And the reason why they didn't know who, because Lou's direct line of command was really, really small. And, um, uh, and it was very, very closely held. And, uh, and it wasn't until later on that I met him. Uh, and I actually went down to his offices in the Pentagon, uh, in the inner corridors, I mind that. Uh, and uh, that, you know, we chatted uh, numerous times, he and his staff, uh, about this topic and what have you. So, uh, so you know, that's how when people say, oh, Lou isn't who he says he is. Trust me, he is exactly who he says. Yes. And then some. Because most of his most of the stuff that he did is I don't think it's ever going to come out. You know, it wasn't just the UAP burner; it was other stuff too. So he he's quite to a think fellow. Carefully about the end, then some, because he's 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 got a he's got a a border to cross, and a very yeah. big question about how to cross that border. Uh, I, I would like to return to two things you mentioned. First, Dolce, New Mexico. I sent researchers there. Yeah, when that story was big back in the in the nineties, and they did not find the entrance to the base, et cetera, and so forth that was described by this researcher, they found something else, and this is so typical of this phenomenon: the Hikarilla people, a believed that they had been created inside the uh, Archuleta Mesa, right, and two they were constantly being oppressed by cattle mutilations. So something was going on there. But what? It's just well, the way the yeah. phenomenon always leaves you with another question. It's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and that's what's so frustrating about it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I go back to that point I made earlier. You know, we get so frustrated, you know, with the government and I guess with each other sometimes. But the frustration is really misdirected. I think, I think if there was, uh, you know, if, if this phenomenon had any kind of truth to it um, or honesty or compassion or understanding, it would give us a lot more than what it's giving us. It isn't. It is, it is showing us things. It is lying to us. It's projecting things. Uh, I mean, when I had my experience, how the hell do I know what I saw was what ex was exactly what I saw? Was it something else that they wanted me to see? I don't know. I mean, there was there was no message um, uh, uh, per se. There was no message. Um, did it alter my behavior? Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, just like it altered your behavior. Yeah, well, it, uh, it, mine wasn't as dramatic as yours, but it altered my behavior and it it changed the way uh, you know my life has been. So I mentioned to somebody, uh, you know, that, hey, I was going to be on Whitley's show. And I said, but, you know, I think I'm after Whitley. I said, I think I'm just going to back off. And the person came back to me and says, don't do that. You know, don't do that. And this is, and Whitley, this, let me tell you something. This is exactly what you told me. And you've been very, uh, I mean, I, I look up to you. And I, I um, uh, we had a conversation and, and uh, I think I, I might have told you this, but it, it, it struck me. And, I, and somebody asked me, because George Knapp had wanted me to be on his program, and I, I went on his program. And somebody said, why are you doing this? Uh, you, you shy away from this. And I said something Whitley said to me about stepping up. 
Um, um, and, uh, you know, if this thing is taken, uh, is taken to engaging you, perhaps there is a reason you don't understand yet, but, but there are other people out there that have been engaged that maybe need that kind of reinforcement, you know, that's coming yeah. from other people. And uh, so I thought that was very, very nice. I can't remember the exact words you said, but I remember when you said it, a light went off and I, and I said, yeah, yeah, it sounds well, like lately. And- in a sense, it's, it's time. And, and, you know, there's another thing about the phenomenon. It is deceptive. And, but it, it, I think it ultimately, it does care. And, and I'll tell you why I think it's deceptive in a moment. I think it cares. I think we know it cares about us for two reasons. One is the extensive and well-documented fact that missile bases in both the U.S. and Russia, and possibly China, but that's not clear, and uh, at least one such facility in the U.K. have been penetrated in various bizarre ways by the phenomenon, almost as if it is trying to say, this is important, be careful here like by retargeting missiles and things like that. Um, The other thing is the consistent message that it gives to close encounter witnesses. You got to watch out because your environment is in trouble. Those are two things that speak toward our survival. And oddly enough, something that speaks to our mental health is its unwillingness to be more forthcoming. Because what does that do? It forces us back on our own resources and means that we remain an independent entity. We are not overwhelmed. There is something called cultural colonization, which we perform, we Westerners did all over the world, and we wrecked one civilization after another, not even sometimes by intention, like when the Spaniards went to middle America, uh, some, uh, but as often as not, just by simply being there with uh, our breathtaking technology, like the U.S. Air Force in uh, the Solomon Islands in World War II. Yeah. And they know about that, and that's, I, I'm sure, and that's why they are so careful, because they want us to not refocus ourselves entirely on them. And what's happening here now is a very carefully designed. I'm not going to say orchestrated because I don't think they're orchestrating it, but it's a very carefully designed effort to get us used to being closer to them. And I'm going to leave with one thing. You mentioned Antarctica and how much logistics would be necessary. I ended up in Auckland, New Zealand at a time when the United States Air Force was causing, nearly causing riots in the streets because it was sending planes off to Antarctica 24 hours a day from their airport and driving people nuts. And that that went on for over a year back Mm -hmm. in the 80s, 1989, 88. So who knows? And folks, I'm leaving you this question. Who knows? I want to thank Jim Semivan for being with us. I want to again recommend Secret Machines. And for those of you who have bought into the TSA conspiracy theories, 
are you really looking at someone right now who is part of some kind of hidden conspiracy? I don't think so. I'm I not. <laughs> I'm not. Trust me. Yes. I think that we need to help the people on the inside who are coming out do that in such a way that we are as well informed as possible by that process. Thank you for being with us, Jim. Thank you so much, Whitley. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.